From Share Profits, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is the Share Profits radio show, episode number three, for 31st of July, 2019. And here's your host, Tom Winifrith. Hello, this is indeed Tom Winifrith with the third edition of Share Profits Radio, not uh, for once brought to you from Wales, but brought to you by the wonders of modern technology from Greece, from the mighty Hellenic Republic. And I flee here to escape wall-to-wall coverage of Boris Bloody Johnson. I'm getting rather bored of Bozza with his strange announcements that everything is going to be wonderful. You may have noticed that Sterling is falling pretty sharply. As I contemplate my bills here in Greece, I am all too aware of that. It has a flip side. Some people win. Uh, This means that British companies are far more likely to get taken over, quite simply, if you're paying for them in a harder currency in US dollars. If you're a foreign predator buying British companies, they are cheaper because of the weakness of sterling. So why is it that sterling is falling? Well, the simplistic explanation, if you want simplistic explanation, I suggest you read The Guardian or the works of Malcolm Stacey uh, or uh, watch the BBC. And the simplistic explanation is fears of a no-deal Brexit. If there is a no-deal Brexit, if you believe those who believe in project fear, uh, then the skies, uh, the planes will fall out of the sky. There will be a hundred mile tailbacks at the port of Calais. Super gonorrhea will be rife in this country and the British economy will go down the tubes. I don't believe that will happen. For what it's worth, I'm not sure there will be a no-deal Brexit. I suspect that Boris playing hardball with the Europeans and might make them give us a more acceptable deal. Whatever happens, I don't expect uh, the sky, the planes to fall out of the sky super gonorrhea to be rife, uh, and the British economy to grind to a halt. But there are clearly some uncertainties. Uh, There is the possibility that we will have a general election, as Boris Johnson is unable to get uh, his form of Brexit through Parliament. It's possible that if he does get his form of Brexit through Parliament, uh, that he will then call an election, uh, the result of which is uncertain. If there's an election without Brexit, uh, there must be a very real fear that the Brexit party will split the vote uh, of the sane, intelligent half of the country, uh, allowing Comrade Corbyn to sweep to power, perhaps at the head of the coalition of the insane, uh, the uh, uh, Scottish nationalists, Welsh nationalists, etc., etc., all of these, these things are real uncertainties. What would happen if there was a Labour uh, government uh, or either on its own or part of a coalition of chaos? I suspect it would be bad news for the economy. It would therefore be bad news for corporate earnings. And therefore, uh, one would expect uh, that shares would fall as a result. Having said that, there would undoubtedly be a run on the pound and British companies would be even more attractive especially those which had most of their earnings overseas, uh, away from the blighted uh, uh, British economy going down the pan, Venezuela-style. 
All of these things, however, are complete uncertainties. No one can predict what is going to happen over the next six months exactly. What we do know is that the British economy is growing, albeit more slowly, but it is still growing. And it's growing at a faster pace than, for instance, those economies in the Eurozone. But there's no doubt that the global economy is slowing down slightly. And that's going to impact on corporate earnings. I'm not sure that that is priced in. That's why when I see the FTSE 100 moving ahead sharply, uh, partly uh, in reaction to the weakness of sterling, and partly, I suspect, in reaction to the latest Kate takeover news, whether it be Cobham or Just Eat, uh, or whichever one is going to be next, and a feeling that there will be more takeovers uh, during the summer and autumn months, something I think that is distinctly possible. Uh, when I see the FTSE 100 moving ahead sharply, I just look at the underlying valuation for this point in the economic cycle when earnings growth is slowing and is likely to slow across the board. To me, valuations look stretched, and that just makes me feel even more nervous. Maybe that's because I'm a bear. I am inherently cautious. Uh, this show, as ever, uh, is only possible because of our kind sponsor, uh, we don't charge you for listening to the show, and we don't fund this show by inviting on companies uh, to give soft interviews, asking easy questions, allowing them to ramp their shares ahead of a placing. If you want that sort of guff, I suggest you go and listen to my friend Justin the Clown over at Vox Markets. Uh, this show is free. It's brought to you uh, thanks to the kind sponsorship of Riverfork Global Capital the leading provider of funding to junior-listed companies. Riverfort provides equity and debt funding for a range of purposes, including acquisition finance, working capital, bridging to cash flow events, and augmental placings. Funding instruments include short, medium-term loans, asset-backed loans, convertible debt, royalty, and equity financings. It is not, as some people think, just a provider of convertible debt instruments, are those things which are termed, uh, I think, incorrectly, all as being death spirals. Over the summer, Riverfork will be hosting a series of masterclasses, both online and in person, to help company directors understand how to access and optimise funding for their companies. So if you are a CEO or an FD, please contact info at riverforkcapital.com. Tell them where you heard about it this fine podcast at Share Profits Radio, and ask them for more information. Uh, today's show sees just two interviews. Once again, there is no company director. I had hoped that Neil Ricketts would come and answer some tough questions about Vasarian. Uh, instead, uh, he decided he'd do more soft interviews with paid-for folks like Justin the Clown uh, and answer easy questions. So I've done a long, long special with Lucian Myers, a fellow bear, someone who Neil Ricketts uh, described as being dark forces. Lucian and I are dark forces. I've done a long interview with Lucian uh, specifically about Vasarian. That's at the tail of the show, and I hope you enjoy that. Before then, we have an interview with Zach Mir, uh, uh, the man who once described himself as Britain's best-known chartist. So, plenty 
uh, for you to get your teeth into in this show. Uh, I'm not sure who my guest will be next week. If I get my skates on, I might just have an interview with the greatest fraudster of all time, the king of the fraudsters, the funniest man in New York. No, no, Rob Terry of Quindale isn't on holiday in the Big Apple. I refer to Sam Antar. He's agreed to come on the show. It's just a matter of when. And so my first guest today, well, it is light entertainment value. Uh, you may say Zach Mir. Uh, Zach Mir uh, was once described as Britain's best-known chartist. Admittedly, that was by Zach himself. Um, but he's a good sport. He's the godfather of my daughter. Uh, he's been a long uh, a friend for a long, long time, and I'm incredibly rude about him. The reason for that is that Zach knows uh, that, as Oscar Wilde once said, there is only one thing worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. Anyhow, welcome to Share Profits Radio, Zach. I'm delighted to be here. Right, now you are a chartist. Um, charting's a load of rubbish, isn't it? Uh, is it Jim Slater once says, uh, a chartist is a, a, a man wearing a dirty raincoat with no money, or words to that effect? Yes, and I think those people, uh, whether they were doing charting or astrology or anything else to look at the markets, uh, probably wouldn't be successful. Um, to be fair to the whole technical analysis routine, let's call it, um, there are probably behind closed doors uh, many firms, uh, hedge funds and uh, others like that, who are using systematic trading, which is obviously the, the basis of based on charting and based on technical analysis uh, to make millions of pounds. But unfortunately, uh, they won't tell you anything about that. Um, there's a company that I know, uh, which I can't actually mention it, but uh, it's a hedge fund that uh, trades exotic futures. Um, so that might be Bitcoin or uh, butter or uh, sugar or whatever it is. And it makes, I know it makes a lot of money doing that, but obviously they're not going to tell you on what uh, basis uh, they do it. So the problem with this is that you actually only see um, the few people you see in this area are either, let's say, not very good or don't know what they're doing or um, basically uh, don't necessarily want to tell you all the good stuff. OK, now, as I understand it, the, the rationale behind charting is that the for a, a stock, for instance, for an individual share, the movements in the share price historically are driven by the balance of buyers and sellers. If there are more buyers than sellers, it goes up, and more sellers than buyers, it goes down, correct? That's correct, I suppose. Therefore, if uh, you look at the historic movements, and the historic movements, uh, uh, if you're a chartist, give you some guide to the future movements, correct? Uh, they can, yes. Right. Now, isn't the problem with that that what the assumption would be that all buyers and sellers have equal market, uh, equal knowledge of the fundamentals of a stock? Let me give you an example, Zach. Let us say that in a given stock, there were only two people trading it. One of them was someone who'd just been cleaned out by his missus as she had run off with the gardener and was taking all his money. 
He was therefore a forced seller and he owned lots of shares. The other person was a moron. Uh, 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 no, the other person, I take it back, not a moron. Uh, the other person, the other person was someone who had inside information and knew that there was good news coming in the form of a takeover. Because the person who was an insider dealer had fewer shares than the person who'd been taken to the cleaners by his missus when she ran off with the gardener, the share price would go down, but, but on the basis that there were being more shares sold than there were being bought. But that wouldn't be telling you anything, would it? I would go to a more, uh, maybe a, a, a slightly different way of uh, looking at these things. I think that, uh, let's say, uh, in the case of takeover bids or mergers, where you would assume that nobody knew that uh, Just Eat was going to merge with um, uh, takeover.com, takeaway.com, sorry. Um, and the announcement was over the weekend. So on Friday, the stock was, you know, in its natural state, the Just Eat stock. Um, in that case, it, it was, let's say, a genuine surprise. Okay, most people say it, was, it caught the market on the hog. Um, but what I've seen with uh, surprise uh, takeovers like that or deals like that is that for some strange reason, about a month or six weeks before this surprise event, the shares hit a new low. Many, many occasions I could, I mean, in, in Marsat, uh, most of the recent uh, surprise, uh, let's say surprise deals, there's a new low in the stock uh, about a month or six weeks beforehand. Um, and in that case, uh, in the case of Inmarsat, I, I thought there was going to be a deal uh, because, for some strange reason, the shares just made a new low and then came back up again uh, from, you know, the back, back above their previous support. So there are certain rules that you see in certain situations where um, stocks before a bid behave in a certain way. Stocks that gap up um, through their 50-day moving average uh, tend to then follow through very well. And stocks that break out of a, a falling wedge pattern, which is relatively easy to find uh, from the lows, they also tend to do um, to, to to go up. Let's say in, in, in this particular in those three situations, um, I think you're looking at and the whole of technical analysis. You're looking at statistics. You're basically saying whenever there's a pattern uh, A, then it's likely then historically nine times out of ten. Uh, X will happen, it will go up, and, and pattern B, it, it'll go up uh, by 10%, etc., etc. So in the case of a stock that I know you love intensely, uh, Versarian, uh, at the beginning of the month, I mean, I, I think I've, I've sort of half-read your uh, uh, your comments about um, uh, Versarian. I think you're not a bull of the stock. Um, but uh, the beginning, at the end of June, there was a gap uh, through the 50-day moving average at 103 pence. And obviously, since then, the shares have gone up 30%. If I had looked at what you said, I would not be buying the stock. And in fact, I, I shied away from saying the stock was a buy because I thought, well, you know, whatever, it's probably got it right. Um, and But instead, the shares have gone up. So you tend to see, I think that the best answer is you tend to see certain uh, chart patterns or ch chart features happening uh, again and again, uh, and they lead, they lead to the same result. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll come to Vasari in a second, but let's yeah. just take this, uh, your previous examples. Uh, I think what you're quite happily saying about uh, Just Eat and Inmarsat, etc., etc., um, is that in uh, many cases, 
a stock hits a low because for whatever reason the company isn't delivering, and a corporate predator sees an opportunity, and because insider dealing is rampant in the London yeah. market, yeah. Uh, the shares then uh, rise ahead of an official announcement. Uh, all you're saying is that there's a lot of insider dealing in London, which I would agree with, yeah, uh, and you you would agree with. So, so you can do all right. So you can use technical analysis to detect insider trading. So I would, uh, I would be calling up the FCA uh, on Inmarsat and Just Eat because uh, let's say uh, the deal was known about a few weeks ago. The market makers or whoever control the price. Let's say it's the market makers. I'm not sure what they do call. No, no, it's been order book in both those cases. Right. So in those cases, um, there is a flush out of a, a bulls. Anybody who's in there by accident, let's say. And also, in order to get more stock on board, they you know, the, 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 the price goes down. But it's, I mean, literally, Cadbury's, I mean, most of this four to six week rule, you see it in almost every single takeover there is. And it's probably the same cases, um, a bit like, I think, AstraZeneca. Um, there was a final little dip about a month ago. And now the shares, I think, are on a new high. So I think, yeah, I think the, the way that technical analysis is used with you know, the RSI being oversold and this and that is a bit different. I think probably since in the 20 years, that uh, near 20 years that I've known you, um, I've probably had quite a lot more time than most uh, to uh, uh, sort of sharpen uh, my TA uh, uh, sort of uh, skills. And I think it's now more down to just seeing certain setups, uh, like the gap through the 50-day moving average near the low, um, just a few. I think I wrote a book for you, actually. You know, maybe five years ago, six years ago, where there was like I, don't know, I had to sub it. I'm I'm still in, in the sub yeah, in receiving I'm, therapy as a result. I'm, I'm sure you. Yes, I'm sure you are. Um, but I would actually. I wake up at night having nightmares that I've died and I've gone to hell, and in hell the devil turns around and says, "For eternity, you're going to have to be correcting Zachmir's spelling mistakes and basic errors of grammar." I'm guessing why that's why we're actually there's actually a podcast rather than me writing anything for you. Tonight. Absolutely, no, 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 no. Whatever my sins, I feel I don't deserve that, but I will receive it on Judgment Day. Uh, God will be laughing and waving a five thousand word manuscript by yourself in my face. Right. So anybody listening to this who wants me to write you a letter, um, you know, let, let me know and I'll make sure it's as long as possible. Can we just go back to the um, uh, the the, the, uh, the the issue of charting, though? If you are looking at a smaller company stock where uh, there is no takeover, and for most smaller company stocks uh, there is no takeover imminent. Um, well, there, there's, there's, there you've got the place. There you've got the placing problem in the sense that uh, uh, you know there'll be a wonderful setup. There'll be a gap through the 50-day moving average. There'll be this or that, and then the next day. Uh, there's a placing, and uh, you know, it's all you know, the, the whole charting goes out the window. Uh, but, but I wonder, does the charting go out the window anyway with small caps? Because if volumes are relatively uh, uh, limited, can you honestly say that uh, most of the trades are done by people uh, who post comments on the LSE asylum, etc., uh, etc.? Et um, given that these people have got negative IQs, why are we saying that their trades somehow add to the sum of collective knowledge? Um, I think, I, well, I, I, again, I take your point, liquidity is always an issue, but, um, and also... If a, stock is, if a stock is illiquid, then just having one person in there whose wife has run off with the gardener is having to sell his stocks in a hurry... Uh, but Neil Woodford, for instance, if it's just if you just have well, Neil Woodford on one side of the trade and it's illiquid, 
And the only other people on the other side of the trays are bulletin board morons who post on the LSE asylum. How can you say, Zach, that the share price action tells you anything? It, it does, because you, have, you still have the patterns, but patterns still work even on an illiquid stock. Uh, the, the moving average or gaps also are relevant. Obviously, if it's really, really liquid and it looks like a, any, uh, you know, like a drunken spider on the screen, well, obviously uh, the, tra you know, the finger, the, the footprints of the drunken, the drunken spider on the screen, then that's that's uh, that's another thing. But I do think one, I think there is there is value there, and you know, I'd be happy to show people the, the value. The second is, I'm not sure what the success rate of people trading fundamentally on the, on small caps is. Versus any, I don't think that's any better, or I don't think TA is any better or worse than than trading uh, through the fundamentals. Oh well, I, we can come to the issue there about. Uh, surely the other issue is uh, the people who make money from shares, the people who make the real money, that that Buffett fellow or Nigel Ray, do yeah. so because they're long-term investors. They don't trade at all. Yeah, but you can still lose money long, you know, long-term on you know Metro Bank or Aston Martin or, or, or whatever it is. I think. I, I think you're right, but I think it's more the quality of the TA rather than actually TA being wrong itself, uh, which is which is the issue. And uh, you know, you're right in the sense that if there's an illiquid stock. I'm trying to think of one at the moment, but there's liquid stock. Uh, your the data that you have is going to be that much that much poorer. But I mean, I'm looking at the chart of Cora Gold at the moment, uh, but it, it still has you know it still has an inverted head and shoulders pattern. It's still if it breaks uh, six and a half pence. You know, it, it it will probably go to ten pence. Um, but you you know you could trade you could trade um, if you're a fundamental trader. You buy the shares now. You might you know if you wait ten years, well probably you'll make it. You know you'll make you'll make it whether. Uh, if you're a fundamental trader, don't you just say most of these small cap shares and I am such shit that you don't bother with them all t uh, at all? Uh, I think that's right. I think the the only key the only I mean obviously I followed you for for all these years as well and what you write and what you say. Uh, it's all to do with management. It's all to do with cash in the bank. It's all to do with earnings. And you're basically, if you're a fundamental investor, you're 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 using your money to 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 buy to buy other people's cash. I mean, basically, and you're trying to get that cash as as cheaply as possible, and, and those profits as cheaply as possible. So, uh, I don't think there's really an argument. I think the 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 real the real miracle would be if if I could prove uh, that TA worked. Well, in in small cap stocks, but I mean, when I was asked, I was asked at the uh, uh, the April UK Investor City Forum to come up with my top pick uh, <coughs> of that of that time, um, and out of the six stocks, uh, two tripled, three were up by thirty percent, and one stayed the same over the following month. So you know, if I put my mind to it, I can I can do okay. It's a shame that the, that that list wasn't. Uh, wasn't um, sort of put out to the general public, but the people there had, a, had the sort of the treat of their lives, you know. So, in fact, one of the stocks was uh, was Big Dish, the other one was Argo Blockchain, and um, there was Serica. There was a few other stocks in there, which were, I suppose, a combination of fundamental and technical. But I think if you have the technical thing to give you some timing, uh, and also the technical thing to say when to get out, like Buffett, you know, went long of Kraft Heinz at eighty dollars, or maybe. If he'd gone out at 70, he wouldn't be like, uh, you know, when when support was broken, he wouldn't be languishing at $30. So, um, you know, there, there are issues there. And I, I've, I've seen Nigel Ray speak. I saw him speak uh, uh, a couple of months ago. And obviously, um, you know, he still, you know, he can still buy at 10p and see it go down to 1p or zero. I mean, that that's always going to happen. So 
Um, I think it's, again, down to the quality. It's also down to one of the lessons I've learned is less is more. Re only choose the chart, which really, really screams at you that it's a, it's a good chart, um, not sort of, you know, uh, one every 10 minutes. And uh, most, mostly, and even in the case of share profits, you write about a lot of companies. If you just wrote about, I don't know, one a week or one a month, I'm sure your strike rate would be, you know, even better than it is now. Mm. Uh, the sarcasm is the lowest form of wit, Zach Mir. Um, I, um, uh, what, what, on that, would you, I was going to ignore the question I was going to ask you. I'll come back to that in a second. Do you think in this age today, we actually have too much information? Investors are uh, uh, urged to sign up for trading systems all over the place to go and check the level two prices, yada, 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 yada. And they have so much information. It just encourages people to overtrade, which is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I think that is that is probably the number one thing. I think there are a lot of people out there. You know, you're, you're there with your mobile phone, you're sitting at the computer, you can trade anywhere, and uh, it really is. There's too much flipping, too much short-term activity. I think uh, I read I read you know on Twitter there was somebody like a few months ago who just said I'm out of I'm out of small caps, can't take it anymore. But all it is is for people who want to put a grand or two into a stock, hope that it doubles. Uh, and, and flip it after a week or two, and that's it. I mean, that's all that, you know, the, the long-term stuff is gone. Uh, the liquidity on AIM is gone. And, uh, you know, it really is uh, the casino. And, you know, I'm, I'm out. And I think there is, a, there is a problem there. It's not like it was, you know, 20 years ago. Or, you know, I thought it was better. It was better before it went electronic, actually. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Now, on the subject of charting and um, uh, uh, stocks that go up a lot, uh, I was thinking the other day about stocks which are super frauds um, are almost invariably heroes before they're exposed to zeros. Uh, shares in Quindell, Globo, Cupid. Think about all of the sort of uh, big frauds which we've had over yeah. the past five years. It's not like they've listed, done nothing, and then gone fucked. Uh, they've listed, gone through the roof. They've been stellar performers. People have made a lot of money. Uh, and then suddenly it all starts to go horribly wrong. Um, no trading system can really, uh, you know, uh, we know, we look at Stockopedia run by um, uh, that great man, Ed Croft. Uh, and Stockopedia had Quindell as one of the 10 cheapest stocks on AIM. Uh, it had Globo as a 92 out of 100 buy. No trading system just based on data or anything uh, can take account of fraud, can you? Um, and presumably the chart, there, was a, there must have been times when Quindell and Globo and Cupid and all these things were charting buys. I think, well, I think that's right. In fact, I've got, got charting buys written by you for, on them. I'm sure you, well, I think I call, it, I call Quindell up from 10 feet to 40 feet before it uh, blew up, so... Uh, um, it, it did actually yeah, had its moments, uh, as you said. You're absolutely, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, going back to Vasarian, um, what was it, 20p? No, not, not that we're saying that Vasarian's a fraud, of course. No, 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 no. But going back to that stock, um, you know, you can see when it had its, uh, when there was, you know, the elation. It's a bit like the Bitcoin situation. It had that there was sort of the elation there, and uh, then, you know, then there's been the setback. Um, the, the the charting rule or the TA rule is 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 to use the 200-day moving average. Um, you know, so that when a stock is above that line, you, you still regard it as being uh, in, an, in an uptrend. 
And normally, um, you know, when you finally lose that 200-day moving average, as say, I don't know, the Versarium did in February, then you take another view. Um, that, that tends to be uh, a reasonably good rule. But I think you're right. I mean, it, it's a bit, you know, placings, takeovers and frauds are very, very difficult uh, for anyone to get a handle on, whether you're fundamental or um, uh, you know, technical. But I think with technical, you might have an, uh, if you know technical analysis, you might have an extra warning sign as to when something is, uh, you know, is potentially going to top, uh, to, to, to top out. Um, so but, but you say that there's no uh, warning sign on, for instance, placings. Um, if I look to uh, one particular stock uh, of late, Westminster Group, run by the loathsome uh, Tony Baldry of 3DM Infamy, uh, its shares zoomed up from 8 or 9p to, I think, the, the peak any fools were paying was 18p. Yep. But it was blindingly obvious. Uh, the company had done a bailout placing raising just 750 gross uh, in February. Uh, it was blindingly obvious that the company was almost out of cash and that a placing was inevitable. So uh, you can do that just by looking at RNS statements and the last reported balance sheet. Um, that Doing that, you know, my cats, if they looked at those things, could work out that a placing was inevitable. Uh, surely fundamental analysis you can see when companies are going to have placings. Largely. Well, no, but the only thing is that, you know, if you were, if you were that trading minded, uh, you, you could have had a great run on the shares from say 8p to 18p, um, you know, as a short term flipper or trader in that particular stock. Unfortunately, uh, there were quite a lot of people who paid 18p, um, uh, which was the, the, the highest um, offer. I think the highest bid was 16 uh, uh, and those people um, have managed to lose uh, half of their money in the space of 10 days. Yes. No, no I mean, I, I, I totally, you know, I think the only thing is with that one, you just you would have avoided it totally, where, even, if it, even if it went up to 50p or, or whatever. I mean, there, that was a stock you were just not going to get involved with. If you're trading technically, maybe there was a trade to be had. Um, I, I saw that move on the upside, but then I thought Westminster Group, yeah, well, maybe I'm, I'm not going to touch that one. So that, you know, I suppose I'm, com I'm able to combine some of the fundamental and technical aspects there. But I mean, with, with, the, with the small caps, I think you're right. I mean, I, I I'm not going to I'm not going to defend uh, these situations where they've got no cash, no business model. Uh, somebody's been, you know, their CEO has been paid 200 grand a year. All that sort of stuff. I mean, the red flags are there from, you know, and I've, I've got the red flags. I've learned that in the last five years from interviewing CEO of CEO. I mean, you, you within the first 10 seconds, you can normally tell, oh, we've got one of those. You, you know, you can tell the good ones, the bad ones. You know, the management is, is you know, is, is normally quite a giveaway, too. So well, what's, your, what's, your, what's your sort of um, uh, uh, what really sets the alarm bells ringing when you interview management? Because I've always found the thing that the most convincing people um, are the ones who are telling me the biggest lies. Yes. Um, I don't have very good sort of gaydar when it comes to, to, to crooks and fraudsters, I'm afraid. Which is one reason, actually, I know Paul Jordan once said uh, the only time he refused to take a company meeting was Rob Terry, uh, because he was terrified that Rob Terry would be so charming that he'd persuade him, against his better judgments, to back Quindell.
I have to say, normally for me, which is a, might be a weird one, uh, it's actually when they switch it on for the interview, and then as soon as the interview's finished, I mean, they're just, they're, you know, they're just, they're off. I mean, they're just like, you know, that's it. There's no talking. There's no, it's like Jekyll and Hyde. And that's, I mean, that sounds, that sounds a bit strange, but they just, they put it on for the interview and then they put it off again. That means they're, they're very, you know, insincere. And they, I mean, they, they, I've had that with a lot of CEOs. So I don't know if that makes, uh, that helps at all, but it's actually the, the engagement either side of the interview, which is normally quite you know, the, the giveaway. They're just there. I, yeah, I find I find when uh, uh, if the guy says either either off uh, or usually off uh, 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 an interview, but sometimes on an interview, if he says I'm terrified we're going to get taken over at this low share price, uh, and of course is not buying any shares himself, uh, I I take that as being uh, the ultimate red flag from a CEO interview. Yeah, things I think things like that, but I, I mean normally your your. Your rules of, you know, the the, the debt, uh, the, um, the 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 pay, um, you know, all those sorts of things. They they are, I have to say, I mean, on a general view, uh, very uh, very telling. Um, but you know, most a lot of people they want to trade stocks, which I mean, in most situations, things are not quite so you know clear cut, are they? I mean, you know, there things are maybe a bit too optimistic. They're a bit tight on cash. It's still a good story. You know, you're in that sort of game, Ruth. Mm. You're a more charitable man than I am. Now, tell me, Neil Ricketts and Vasarian, uh, since he's obviously the flavour of the month, uh, yes. where, do you, where do you see... I have, and I have said, by the way, that the shares could go anywhere short term because, as far as I can see, the guy is a totally shameless ramper uh, and he has a legion of patsy followers who will um, uh, ramp on his behalf. Uh, I think some of his behaviour over uh, getting folks to sign NDAs about presentations and then encouraging them to buy shares, etc., is totally shocking. But I accept that the shares could go anywhere in the short term. So I think they could go up, they could go down. I just know on fundamentals uh, that the stock is grotesquely overvalued. Do you have a, a technical view? Yeah, I think they're going to. Um, I think they're going to one sixty or one sixty. <coughs> Uh, so that's uh, that's my view. They are above their 200-day moving average again, and uh, while they're above that, uh, which is around 115, I think they could go to 165, 170. I think you know you, they have uh, the move from June has been a very has been a strong one. So um, you know, they might go down again after that. But uh, I'm reminded of the um, the UK Investor Show. You know, there was that the panel that I hosted, which is obviously one of the highlights of the whole the whole event. And uh, I thought Neil was, he was very, very convincing. He had all the answers. I mean, he was very, very impressive. So, um, you know, in this game, management is important. Maybe he has the strength to justify the valuation of the company eventually. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess uh, um, uh, 200, uh, at 160, the market cap would be what? 260 million quid for a business which uh, the core graphene business. Um, has got sales of about a million quid and loses a million quid a year. So I guess 250 times sales. Whatever. Oh, uh, yeah. It's going to be different this time. A new paradigm, new, new boundaries, new technology. He's in Tesla territory, isn't he? He is in, uh, indeed in Tesla territory. Um, but would you be a buyer of Tesla? Um, I love Tesla. 
So um, I don't know whether she, I think the, the shares have taken a tumble. Um, I, I think I think uh, Elon Musk is fantastic, and uh, you know I, I don't you know I'm like I'm a I'm a major major fan. So um, I don't. Are, you, are you being serious here? No, serious. It's great. Why? He's a liar and a fraudster, surely. But but you know he's he's he's, he's sold me the dream. It's fantastic. Electric cars is the future. But do you accept that he's a liar and a fraudster, Zach? I think he's very charismatic. Right, right. I can see why you're getting into PR. Um, now, before we come in, I guess, onto that subject, um, uh, do you have a, any sort of macro view, uh, which you said already that, you know, before you say something is a TA buy, you will take into account uh, uh, some f uh, issues of fundamentals, Fundamentally, are you bullish or bearish about equities? Uh, I think that uh, we are in a uh, situation. It's a ten. We're ten years into this. Uh, what, I don't know. I would describe it actually. It's uh, uh, ten years into a recovery market. No, a totally uh, an artificially, grossly artificially induced uh, bubble, and uh, it, it, everybody's too scared. Too scared to let that bubble go and. Uh, they, and let it burst. So it's going to just keep. Anytime the market goes down like one percent, you know, there's a rate cut, and the Fed starts crying, and you know, Trump says, you know, do something, and uh, there's just, I don't, there's uh, uh, any. While interest rates are so low, there is no way uh, there's going to be any uh, serious correction in the stock market. And they, as we know, because of QE being a one-way street or a dead-end street. You, once you've started QE, like the Japanese, you can never finish it. So the Japanese are, what, maybe 30 years into their QE. Uh, we'll have 30 years of the same sort of thing. So we've got rid of boom and bust. We just have this uh, ongoing, uh, uh, you know, asset bubble situation. And uh, I think, you know, the Japanese thing was is, is the model. It's just, you know, uh, for, you know, QE forever, ultra-low interest rates forever, and whatever, we, whatever the unintended consequences of that, who cares? So the asset bubble will just keep on growing. We just keep on going on and on and on, and uh, you know. And when and when Donald Trump says buy buy the dips, he's right. Well, unfortunately, yes, because he make they make sure that uh, there any any dip is bought into. So uh, I, I think that you know we, we haven't spoken for for many years on this, but it's it, it's just going to go on and on. I think, and if it, if the Japanese started it, and this will just keep keep going on and on. I think the only surprise really. Is is that inflation issue? Um, you know that there wasn't the the because everybody thought you know zero interest rates or near zero interest rates you'd have inflation, um, but because of the internet and because of other uh, trans you know price tra transparency transparency issue things that we have now, uh, and also because of many you know many types of job you know becoming much cheaper. Um, you, you've had everything sort of evened out at a, a low inflation level. So you say you uh, say low inflation, but assets have inflated. We have had inflation in terms of house prices, uh, the value of football players, football clubs, stocks, bonds. They have had inflation. Uh, what we haven't had is real wages um, for the majority of the population going up. So there has been inflation of sorts, surely, Zach. Whatever the uh, RPI uh, uh, state uh, says, there has been inflation. Yeah, well, obviously the RPI we, we know is is, is uh, slightly fiddled. Um, but then, because you know, you've got footballers' salaries and the houses going up, but then you've got uh, 
the price of journalism uh, going through the floor. You've got the price of uh, many, uh, you know, many um, jobs that you know used to be more value. Say, white, a lot of white collar work has gone down in value as well. Um, so I think overall, the you know, let's say the price of a computer has gone right down. TVs have gone right down. Not, you know, everything in the end, I think, is is almost is rather strangely cancelled out at two percent or three percent or five percent or whatever you believe the the value to be. So you've got that price amplitude um, with some things going through the roof and some things going through the floor, which causes, uh, which uh, does tend to suggest though that the distribution of wealth becomes more uneven. Those who had wealth at the start have done well. Those who didn't haven't. Yes, and I think we're getting to a stage now as, you know, obviously we've got the populist thing going on. Uh, and the, the one thing that people, the politicians don't realise is that uh, uh, they can't, people, uh, the money is not the most important thing to people now. There, there are other things which people, I, I don't think people are as bribable as they were before. And that, that is Not problem. as bribable, but also sensing that there is something wrong with society. Uh, it is wrong that uh, uh, people who had two million quid houses in London now have three million quid houses in London, whereas in other parts of the country, people have just been ground into, well, their standard of living, their purchasing power has not gone up at all. And the value of their main asset, their home, hasn't gone up by much either. Yes. And so they, if, they, they, if they did, they owned one in the first place. Yeah, so the Brexit vote was was a protest vote, and what politicians don't understand that people weren't people didn't care whether they, in a way, it was it was such a protest that actually it wasn't about money; it was actually about the principle of things being unfair, and they they don't mind being a bit poorer just to have things the way they want it rather than the way that somebody else wants it. Um, mm. you know, so, so Boris's current uh, spending spree, I think, it's just going to fall flat on its face. He said, "We don't want your money; we just want you know we want things to be fair." Um, yeah, you can't you can't bribe us anymore, and I think that will be, um, you know, I, I think he's going to lose he's going to lose um, horrifically badly. I mean, he's, he's he's basically on a suicide mission. He doesn't know it, um, but uh, it's quite funny that the whole the the whole system the, the establishment's got to try and negotiate between uh, Corbyn. There can't be a Corbyn government, and there can't be a No Deal Brexit. And how do you get in between the two? And we've got sort of four or five months to get, you know, to land in the right place. Mm. I think it's I a mess. Think it's a mess. Yeah, I think I think we'll actually probably get. We could get Corbyn. We could get the Lib Dems. I mean, we don't actually know how. You know, we've thrown everything up in the air. We don't actually know what we're going to get. The only good thing is that the pound is falling like a stone, which is great for, um, you know, the the leading UK companies. And so we'll probably have the FTSE at eight thousand, eight and a half thousand. Uh, you know, every I think probably every cent the the, mark, the dollar, the pound dollar goes down. We're, we're adding fifty points to the to the FTSE. So you know, happy days. It's a shame that we're happy days for FTSE. Bad news for those about to go on holiday in Europe. Well, yeah, but if you're going on holiday, you're there to you're there to take a hit. But yes, I, t I take I take the point. Yeah. Now, Zach, you, you recently you've um, been appointed as the communications officer. Is that the right title for? Big Dish Ventures PLC. Digital Communications Officer. You are, in effect, a glorified PR man. Uh, I would say I'm a communications officer. You're helping get, get the message across. Yes. Uh, I think, I mean, the whole story of that was that... Uh, Since you were appointed, the share prices, I think, has fallen by about 35%. 
Well, to, to be fair, um, I, my appointment... Is that all down to you? Uh, I don't think so. No, I think that uh, it's, it's uh, clearly market forces, but uh, the situation was the shares were two pence in, all, in, uh, in April. They went up to nine pence in June, and now they're somewhere in the... They then, appointed, they then appointed you, and, and they've halved. Well, no, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it that way. I would say that the market, you know, the shares are finding their own level. They had a placing at uh, they, uh, placing at two point of uh, at seven seven and a half ten p. Yeah, yeah. And that uh, was that was that was five days after the company said that it was fully funded. Well, it, it was it was fully funded, and then somebody knocked on the door and said, uh, "Would you like uh, to be even more fully funded?" Sorry, someone knocked on the door and said, "Would you like to be even more fully funded?" Exactly. Um, if the company was fully funded, why, um, why, why did it accept dilution to become even more fully funded? Well, I think it was it was a, an offer that was you know two point one million pounds was was a, a great offer to uh, roll out the business uh, more quickly, to roll out the business more effectively, and um, to, to basically make sure that uh, Big Dish. Uh, is all over the UK, um, and you know the, the brand is out there like the big brands that we know in you know the uh, the apps that everybody's familiar with, like Just Eat and uh, Deliveroo, all these other uh, organisations. So I think I think it's great. Can I ask? There was another little thing that before the placing, the company said that within a few days, by early June, it was going to open up for business in both Reading and also Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, I think Reading has gone ahead, Sodom and Gomorrah, but much, much later. Sodom and Gomorrah has been shelved. Do you think it was unfortunate to make uh, such comments ahead of a placing? I'm not sure where Sodom and Gomorrah is, but um, Brighton, Brighton. Was, Brighton was launched um, uh, very soon after the company said it would be. So I think, uh, I don't think that was a real... Uh, so Brighton was, sorry, Brighton was, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was launched late June. Uh, having said it was going to be launched on June the 8th, or was it early July, Reading hasn't been launched at all yet. Well, the, all these all these things, you can't, I mean, you can't, it, it, companies are obliged to make forecasts about what they're doing, and they make them to the best of their ability. Uh, I don't think there's been any real uh, delay in the recent rollout, and uh, I think it's very much back on track at the moment. Is that, um, in terms of being back on track, one of the things I find hard about Big Dish, and I, I, as you know, I like the CEO very much, but one of the, or not the CEO, the, um, the, the chappy behind it, Aidan. Um, but one of the things, I, two things I find hard are, one, do we get any indication on the number of restaurants across all your active territories that are using Big Dish? I, I, I find it very hard to track that. And the second is, I've got no idea in terms of forecasts. How does well, one value the stock when yeah, it's very hard, I, I, when there appears to be no forecasts in the market? This, I, I think this is a new, this is a new business, a new type of business. There hasn't been this sort of same kind of rollout of, of restaurants uh, before uh, in the public market, and therefore all of this is going to be. Uh, a little bit of guesswork. Um, sometimes things go quicker than you expect. Sometimes go, things go slower. But I don't see that any, you know, a week here, a week there makes any meaningful difference to the the goal, let's say, of having a national rollout complete by this time next year. Um, it really is whether the 
there's traction in the idea, which I think there is, whether it inspires investors, which it does, and whether it's uh, what I think a, uh, a easily accessible and understandable company uh, to most of the general public. And I think it's, it's, done, it's, captured the, it's clearly captured the imagination. The stock has liquidity. And, um, you know, it, it's uh, a good two-way market. And uh, it's, it is now more than fully funded uh, until 2021. And, um, you know, it's, as, I, as I said, it's, it's an exciting situation and one where you know, the, the rollout there will, I'm sure, live up to what uh, you know, everyone's looking for. Sorry, so before the recent placing, it was, quote, fully funded. Now, after the placing, it's fully funded until 2021. That's correct. Right. It was, it was fully funded to execute the UK rollout uh, even before the extra money came in. Clearly, with the extra money, it uh, can spend more money on te uh, new territory managers, more money on marketing, and uh, it can probably speed up the whole process, which is obviously what people like you are looking for. Speed up the whole process, but it would only be fully funded to 2021? Well, it, it, if there were no revenues, significant revenues before that time, 2021, if there... If, if, uh, the rollout. Uh, There's no uh, revenues by 2021, Zach. I suggest you may be looking for another job. I the company was, I, would be in deep trouble. No, no, I think that uh, I, I think that the uh, the rollout um, will be done well before then, and uh, with the extra funding, uh, I think it'll it'll go quicker, and also I think it'll be a, you know, a deeper, uh, a, a larger number of restaurants more quickly. Is it a bit of a problem that the restaurant sector seems to be having a bit of a, a bad time right now? That is uh, perfect conditions for Big Dish. I think that's something that uh, people haven't appreciated. Uh, the, the fact that there is a, uh, a downturn in the casual dining area, uh, courtesy you know, with people like Jamie Oliver, etc., means that there are those uh, uh, empty tables uh, uh, at off-peak times, and that's perfect uh, uh, territory for a company like Big Dish. So, in fact... Uh, the, the, the listed uh, uh, you know, restaurants and restaurant groups on the market um, should be you know, beating a, a path to Big Dish to get more people and get more uh, tables filled. Mm. Right. Do we have any data on how many restaurants that were using Big Dish four months ago are still using Big Dish? That is to say, do we know uh, if there is any drop-off rates or if there is any data on that? Uh, the data I uh, am aware of, uh, there, there is a, uh, let's say, some, some people come off the platform, some people get on the platform, but it is relatively consistent. The only times it may wobble more would be, let's say, during Christmas when restaurants are obviously more, more busy. And uh, let's say, you know, uh, in, uh, in the middle of summer in, in you know, resorts near the sea, etc. But uh, the, the real, you know, the sweet spot for Big Dish is actually in the, the quieter times when restaurants are in need of uh, filling those tables and also... So, so we, we do, you didn't quite answer the question, Zach. Do we, um, I'm sorry to be, push you on this, but do we have any data on how many restaurants who were using Big Dish shall we say, uh, at the end of January, are still using it today? What the is the attrition rate? No, the, the, fig, the figure is uh, relatively consistent. At what? 
or whatever it, whatever it happens to be at the moment. Um, you know, if it's a if it's a few hundred. Oh, so, 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 so you're saying that basically all nearly all of the restaurants that were using uh, Big Dish at the end of January are still using it. But no, because we have we have more restaurants coming on the platform all the time as we expand the uh, the read you know the the footprint. So therefore. Um, as some some may go, but then the new ones come on. So it's you know it's it's uh, at the moment it's a grow it's a growing situation because I'm sure it's I'm sure it's overall great. I, I I you know I'm not I'm not going to push you now because I, I realise numbers not not you know, it's your strong point always. But uh, it would be an interesting metric to get what the attrition rate is, uh, 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 how many uh, uh, if there were you know X hundred as at January thirty first. How many of those X hundred are still there? As as a you know potential investor, that is a, a number I'd like to see. I only say this because you are the digital communications it, officer. It is it is relatively consistent. It, that's that's the, uh, the, the so there, there might be seasonal variations, but overall there isn't there isn't there, there's not sort of a whole gang of restaurants coming on and getting off again. It is relatively consistent because it's it's a kind of product for them. Or offering for them, which is always useful. Listeners, he's not answered the question. That's why he's gone into PR. Anyhow, Zach, it was a great pleasure talking to you. We will talk again in a little while. And uh, uh, thank you very much for agreeing to do the interview. Thank you, Tom. Do you think I gave Zach too hard a time? I think not. I think he enjoyed it. I've known Zach for an awfully long time, about 20 years I always joke about how I've got no friends whatsoever. Uh, but I suppose Zach is my friend. So I've got one friend. And he is still my friend, even after I gave him a fairly hard time in that interview, especially over his new uh, employment contract at Big Dish Ventures. It's a company I wish well. I have no particular view on the shares. I can see a bull case, but I can also see a bear case. I like the management, so I hope they do well. Uh, but I make no views on their ability to deliver, uh, other than the fact that they have hired possibly uh, the biggest vandal in terms of the use of the English language uh, as a man to do their press releases. I can understand why companies choose not to come on Share Profits Radio to be interviewed. Zach is my friend, and I think I asked him some hard questions one of which I note he resolutely refused to answer. I think that makes me a little bit more nervous about big dish ventures. But companies don't like uh, facing up to that sort of questioning. I remember a long, long time ago, during the dot-com boom, I was working for a fraudulent internet company called Global Net Financial. I wasn't a management. I was just uh, a journalist. Indeed, I attempted to blow the whistle on the company uh, for putting out an RNS, which was completely misleading, for it was a listed company. It owned a website called UK Invest, uh, and it was a preposterous business proposition, huge costs, including my salary. It was the dot-com boom. I was a TV personality. Who was I to complain? Didn't stop me from attempting to whistleblow, mind you. Uh, and, of course... The other problem with UK investors, it had no revenue. I think you can see the fall, uh, flaw in that business plan. Anyhow, we used to do podcasts there. This is almost 20 years ago now. Uh, interviews with CEOs. 
And one of those who volunteered to do a podcast was Brent Hoberman, the co-founder of lastminute.com. I got the chance to interview him, and I kept on pushing him on points he didn't want to answer. And in the end, he just, he was on the other end of a line. He had headphones on. We were interviewing over the internet. It's quite advanced at that stage. In the end, Brent just lost his temper and said, I'm not going to answer these questions. These are ridiculous questions. He slammed down the microphone and stormed off. Well, I leave you listeners to judge, uh, uh, to make your own conclusions. Of course, the history of lastminute.com after the euphoria of its flotation when every man and his dog, apart from me, uh, I think even Zach subscribed for shares, but everybody else subscribed for shares. The stock market history was not a particularly happy one. My questions were valid, uh, but Brent didn't like asking them. My interview style has not changed. I don't intend giving any CEO an easy time, and therefore one suspects that there won't be that many CEOs who will be brave enough uh, to want to appear on Share Profits Radio. All credit to those who do sign up, and indeed we have one volunteer who's already come forward. More on that brave individual uh, in the weeks that will follow. If you enjoy... Uh, my style of interview, my style of broadcasting, the fact that I don't mince my words. Perhaps you should listen to Bearcast. I know that many of you listening at this point already do listen to Bearcast, but I can see the numbers of people who access this free show, and they are a multiple of the number of people who listen to Bearcast because it is behind the paywall at shareprofits.com. It costs just five ninety nine a month, £5.99 not £599, £5.99, including VAT, to subscribe to Share Profits. And that gets you access to around 300 articles and podcasts a month. So it's remarkable value, less than 2p per article or podcast. I do a weekly, uh, sorry, a daily uh, podcast behind that paywall. It's called Bearcast. In it, you'll have my thoughts on overvalued stocks over-promotes, outright frauds, uh, companies in financial trouble, uh, companies where placings are inevitable, and many other things from the bear side of the market. So if you enjoy what comes up uh, next in this particular edition of Share Profits Radio, uh, then I'm sure you will enjoy Bearcast. Uh, Sign up right now. Of course, we don't have CEOs paying to be interviewed on this particular show. If you want that sort of thing, I suggest you go to Vox Markets and see uh, Justin the Clown ask CEOs some real limp dick questions, which they love answering because they are so soft. Uh, We can only bring you this uh, uh, edition of Share Profits Radio thanks to the kind sponsorship of Riverfort uh, Capital. Uh, so, thank you very much to Riverfork Capital for sponsoring uh, this edition uh, of Share Profits Radio. Uh, as you know, Riverfork Capital uh, provides a range of products for smaller companies on the quoted markets. Funding instruments include short, medium term loans, asset backed loans, convertible debt, royalty, and equity financings. It is not just a provider of convertible loan notes what some people clumsily describe as death spiral. 
but of a range of financing alternatives. If you are a CEO or a finance director of a smaller company on AIM or the main market seeking financing, uh, you'd like to know more about what Riverfort does, it will be hosting a series of masterclasses, both online and in person, to help you understand, access and optimise your funding options. So if you are on the board of a smaller company and you have any interest in this, please contact info at riverfortcapital.com, tell them where you heard about it, and ask for more information. Thank you to Riverfort for sponsoring this edition of Share Profits Radio. Uh, And now for something completely different. Now, my second guest today is Lucian Myers. You may say... Uh, we had the old fool on last week. Uh, why bring it back? Well, there's one reason. Uh, that reason is a company called Vasarian, which is quite the most remarkable promote on the AIM casino. Uh, when we were recording last week, Vasarian was due to hold an event in Bristol. and It was just a possibility the company would have had some news. Uh, therefore, we've held off. This is a one-off special with Lucien on the subject of Vasarian. Uh, Lucien, uh, good to speak to you again. Um, what happened at this event in Bristol? Well, I'm not sure, Tom, because I wasn't invited to it. But uh, um, let me just before we start on this, let me just say that um, I, I haven't don't often do podcasts on just one individual stock. The last time I did it was on Purple Bricks, and, and what I'd just say now is because it's impossible to. Uh, convince the bulls on Versarian and probably the bears as well. So let's just say what after we finished on this, we come back in a year and see see what's happened. Because I, I, to be quite frank with you, this, I, this uh, um, theory that there's some sort of bear conspiracy on Versarian, the fact is that there is very, very little borrow. I'm short of a few shares. And uh, only because you, there is no borrow. There are no institutions who hold the stock. And so, um, really, it's a, the, the, the idea that there's a whole bearish conspiracy out there, I mean, people are obviously questioning the company, but in terms of a short position, it's absolutely minuscule because there's no it's borrow. It's because there's no borrow, because there's no institutions. And that's that's the correct. crazy thing. The market cap is now more than 200 million sterling, and there are yeah. zero institutional shareholders. Yeah. Uh, is that because... Private investors on uh, the LSE Asylum and elsewhere are so much more switched on than fund managers, and fund managers are just missing out on a great opportunity. Or is this a familiar tale where a stock gets massively overpromoted and the institutions, uh, though most of them are sort of inbred public school nitwits, they are marginally smarter than your average bulletin board moron, uh, and that's telling you something. Well, I think it's just under the radar, really, for institutions, because the broker has not written a note on it. Um, we might get, get to that in a minute. But um, I don't think anybody knows about it. Incidentally, when I say there are no institutions, there are no institutions of over 3% that have been published. There might be a few few have got under that, and I don't know. But, I mean, apart from private client research, which is not of the highest quality, although some of it's okay, um, there's just no 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 one follows it because there aren't any brokers out there uh, out there writing anything on it and you know I don't think your average institution conducts his research by by reading bulletin boards but anyway I digress uh, to get back to the to, to, to the company I've done a back little to the bit event of... in Bristol 
Those go even much worse. The company I, announced. Yeah. They announced that that uh, twelve private investors selected at random would be there, and by pure coincidence. Uh, those 12 investors. One of them was, incidentally, Doc Holliday, the blogger, uh, who is not paid by this company, but seems to have a soft spot for it. Uh, the other 11 were the leading disciples of this company, the leading members of the cult, singing its praises on Twitter and bulletin boards 28 times a day. So they turned up to this event and were made to sign a non-disclosure agreement, making one might think there was price-sensitive information, but then freely, nearly all of them boasted about buying shares the next day. It's a remarkable way to inform investors, isn't it? Well, it's, yeah, I mean, I don't Lucian? agree. To, um, I, I don't know whether it's a, um, just a thing of getting private investors excited or whatever. As, as far as I know from reading various reports, and I could be totally wrong about this, the, 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 the idea is that Ecom are interested in building large um, uh, structures for railways using three 3D, not two D, three D technology through printers. They've got a subcontract. This is what the the guys are saying on the bulletin boards. I think there is a subcontractor called Scale. Who, who is Ecom, by the way? Ecom are a huge American. Uh, construction company it, um, it, ecom stands for things like architecture engineering management operations something they're a huge huge company billion pound com billions pound company with offices all over the world now in the uk they this is the the story and i have no reason to doubt it that they're interested in uh 3d printing um, sort of manufacturing equipment and have done various trials uh, with various people, one of which is putting graphene into this uh, into these structures to make it lighter and stronger and all the rest of it. And uh, they're using a subcontractor, I think, or what people are saying, it's a company called Scaled, um, who are specialists in 3D printing large structures so what i believe is and, and and inferring from the uh reports that that, that all these 12 people were bust down there to look at a prototype of something made by the subcontractor believed to be scaled on behalf of acom with versaria and graphene in it um and this was you know the demonstration that Graphene is no longer a, you know, sort of pipe dream uh, concept, but is now is now has industrial use and massive orders are going to flow from that. I think that I think that's the idea anyway. So that's what got people excited. In fact, the RNS was not even a, a proper RNS. I think it was a is it called Reach RNS, which is supposed to be non-price sensitive. RNS anyway, Reach, yeah, yeah, it was received very well. It's it? a way of ramping your shares without imparting any information. Yeah, but there's, there's, uh, how does um, the, the the billion pound company feel about having its um, name uh, uh, touted here as Vasarin's new business partner? Well, I don't think they, they've got so many business partners, I don't suppose they're probably even aware of it, or, or, or I, don't, I don't suppose it would bother them one way or another. And, and, and also, you know, between them and 
Bassett Iron is the subcontractor, which incidentally, if it is scaled, is a minuscule company. I mean, it's got zero assets and it's made losses and no balance sheet or anything. But, you know, it may not be them. I don't know. But, but I mean, the idea is that the sort of selling point is that this is a demonstration that, you know, there is a real industrial use for graphene and that a huge company like Acom could be on the cusp of placing massive orders with the subcontractor who presumably then passes them down with graphene orders, huge graphene orders for Bursarian to put it in their, their product. That is what um, gets people going. And one of the exciting things at the moment on the company, which is why the share price has been relatively high recently. Okay, Lucian. Um, now, the thing about uh, Vasarian is uh, Neil Ricketts, the guy behind it who has Twitter diarrhea, claims that he um, basically sunk his entire life savings into the business. He's bootstrapped it, um, uh, and therefore we should, we're, we, you know, we should appreciate that. Well, I mean, the only research that can really be done on Lucian. Oh, hello, can you hear me? Hello. I can. I can hear you. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the, the I can hear you, Lucy. Yeah, the only research that can really be done on uh, Versailles, as far as I'm concerned, is to, to really look at the background of uh, the management. It, it, you know, it, it's obviously a highly speculative stock, and whether graphene ends up working or not is a matter of opinion, and whether Versailles manages to monetize it is a matter of opinion. But the only thing you can really do in looking at these things is to actually look at the track record of the management and you know what they say and whether they've stuck to it so neil ricketts is obviously very keen on uh twitter he doesn't use brokers which is fair enough so he communicates largely through twitter and looking at some of his tweet and oh sorry twitter and he talks a lot to your friend justin wait i believe is called at box markets yes so that those just in the clown at Vox Markets, yes. Yeah. So those he pays Vox Markets large sums of money to get easy questions. But what, what, if you actually analyse what he says, it's full of little—I won't call them lies—but little sort of semi-truths and uh, and uh, half-truths and sort of misleading comments. I mean, I can go through a few of them if you like, and do tell me to stop. <laughs> there are quite a lot of them but I mean to mention your your uh, point um, the idea is that Neil Ricketts left at the end of 2010 to start this company and he's sensitive to jibes from bears and skeptics saying oh well you only put four grand into the company and uh, and um, you got your initial investors to pay a lot more than that. And, um, you know, why don't you buy any shares kind of thing? Well, so he, he writes, I'm quoting him now on Twitter. He writes, uh, a couple of minutes to reflect on some BS bullshit. I didn't invest just £4,000 for my shares. When you start a company, the shares aren't worth anything on day one. Well, maybe a pound, which is their notional value. I bootstrapped the business for the first years, almost losing my house. And then he, he goes on to say, they're called founders. This is another tweet. Founder shares because I was the founder. I gave up the chance of a good salary for four years. I was never paid for the first 18 months. Even now we pay ourselves below the average and recommendations. 
yes, the shares have done well, but no one really knows the sacrifices. Well, that's all very well, but it's not actually true if you look at it. The, the, the fact is that Ricketts left his job in December 2010. Um, uh, the, the reason he, he, claimed, he claimed in a press article he left it was because he wanted to bet, he, he worked for a quoted company called Electron and he wanted to develop a technology called, uh, which he floated the company on the, on the back of, called Bursarian CU. They didn't want to do it, so he just went ahead and did it. Well, the fact is that 11 months after he left, he was drawing a salary from uh, funds he'd raised from investors at hugely more than the money he'd put in. And um, five months after that, He'd raised more money, and he was paying himself a salary of £85,000, which the very next year went up to £97,000. And by so, that time... So, sorry, sorry. Less than, yes. a, year, less, less, less than uh, a year and a half into his business, 11, he's paying himself eight... Eleven months after he left Electron, he raised money at £125 per share against the £1 that he'd paid, because he'd put in this uh, technology, which we'll discuss very briefly later, um, and immediately started paying himself a salary, which for five months until the year end, which is March, at which point he raised, by which time he'd raised more money, and he put it on a salary, which is shown in the report and accounts, for the year ending 2012, sorry, 2013, he uh, paid himself £85,000, and then the next year, £97,000, all the way up to his last salary of £200,000. Well, I mean, if you can say that is the chance of a good salary, I'd call that a pretty good salary for a company which didn't actually work out. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a failure, but the fact is that this great company that he he raised all this money from his, from his friends, relations, whoever it was, investors, actually failed. I mean, it's right now, I mean, it's technically bankrupt, but for the fact that it is uh, um, supported and within the group and therefore supported financially. Okay, so it's not the Vasarians bankrupt. It's not the Vasarians bankrupt, it's the company which he uh, yeah. set up initially. The original company he set up, which is called Versarian Technologies, which is a subsidiary of uh, Versarian, is... You know, it, it's never made any money, it, it, it burns cash, and it's supported by the group, because obviously the group have raised money. But, you know, he was saying exactly the same sort of things about that, admittedly a less sexy industry, um, that, that he is now saying about the graphene prospect. I mean, you know, he said, for instance, Versari and CEU operates in a global market for the thermal management technology, which is set to grow from 8 billion in 2011 to 11 billion by 2016. Blah, 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 blah. Um, we're talking to multinationals, you know, all the rest of it, loads of applications going very well. And now, nothing, you know, it's, it's basically finished. You know, he's, he, and he's, he's basically said so, that it's no longer a core business, uh, that they're no longer looking to commercialise the product, all the rest of it. So, I mean, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not blaming people. People have good ideas, they often fail, they come back, get back into the saddle and succeed with something. But, you know, to say that he's bootstrapped the company and sort of nearly lost his house, I don't know whether that's true or not. But the fact is that the people who bootstrapped the company were the guys who gave him first... 75 grand to get it going and then about half a million quid very shortly after that 
which enabled to to pay his salary and and, and, uh, float the thing on the market. Um, I'm not blaming him for the fact that it doesn't work, but I do think it's a bit rich to kind of say that he bootstrapped the company. When, as I say, he doesn't seem to put any money into it. I mean, he might have spent a bit of time and money um, developing this thing, which in the end turned out not to work. But, uh, you know, I, th- I think that's a bit rich. Anyway, that's that's one thing. So, you know, secondly, he tweeted the other day, um, does Versarian CEO's salary compare with others? And quoted a... Uh, a, a, a little piece, I think it was from Yahoo Finance, something saying that his salary was was uh, perfectly justifiable. I'm not, I, but incidentally, I have no no feeling on this. But, but whether it, whether he's paid more or less than what the average small owned company is paid is too, I don't know is 200 grand of the going rate. I just don't know. But anyway, in in this piece that he tweeted, it says. On average, over the last three years, Versarion has grown earnings per share by 21% each year. Well, that's just not true. I mean, they've made losses for the last forever since they were. So, you know, why do you tweet something? You know, again, what I'm saying is you can you can only really with a small company like this look at what the management's saying. Why do you tweet something like that, which is uh, demonstrably false? Well, okay. Can we? Can I go to one other thing where uh, he's he's being a little disingenuous, not to rain on your parade, Lucien, yeah. which is the idea he only pays himself two hundred grand a year, but he augments that with humongous share sales. And I would refer you to the uh, the past uh, uh, eight or nine months. The company did a placing last year uh, in the autumn at one forty five. Rickett said at the time, I would like to have participated in this placing to buy more shares at 145, but unfortunately, I'm in possession of inside information. So he claimed to have been wanting to be a net buyer. Yeah, I was going to forward to April of this year, and uh, the company announces that it has signed heads of term or a memorandum of understanding with a Chinese institution which could see the Chinese institution uh, invest, taking a 15% stake in Vasarian. Now, I would have thought I have never in my life seen a heads of t- a memorandum of understanding which doesn't give some indication on price. So I would have thought Ricketts must have been an insider there, yet he went ahead and sold hundreds of thousand pounds worth of shares at 136. Now, I'm prepared to accept, because I'm a uh, charity likes to see the good in my family, was the one MOU ever, uh, which had no reference to price and no pricing had been discussed with the Chinese. But still, for Ricketts to be selling hundreds of thousand pounds worth of shares into that spike at 136, when he claimed to have wanted to buy at 145 just a few months previously, is a bit Odd, isn't it? Well, when I was going to, because that was my next point, was on um, he, him saying, at the moment, I can't, but trust me, I will, <coughs> and asked why he didn't buy shares earlier. Um, I took that because there was an inference there that he was in a close period, which he, which he wasn't. This was on October the 22nd, and the results didn't, the interim results didn't come through to December. But to say that you're in, that therefore, I suppose he would say, well, I was in possession of inside information, so I couldn't buy them. But um, I can't see that they've really ever come out with any inside information. It's, a, it, it's a certainly a, 
uh, arguable that there was no inside information um, and he could have bought them. And uh, whatever he might claim to be inside information, why didn't he buy them afterwards? But I agree. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, if I, I don't, I'm surprised that he sold so few shares given the valuation of the company. But, you know, yes, I would agree that um, to say that you're tweeting that at the moment I can't, but trust me, I would buy them and then to sell them later does seem a little bit odd. But, um, you know, I don't, you know I, don't, I don't really have an issue with management knocking out their shares if they're patently overvalued. And to be to be fair to him, he's only he's taken out, what, a million quid's worth of, of net a million pounds, less the, the uh, money that he's had to spend exercising the options. A million pounds in, what, five years now? I mean, there's well, that, people that, have done that, a lot worse. That, you know, but that, that adds a bit to your salary when you've only yeah, yeah, paid yeah, sure, four, sure. when you've only paid four grand for your shares. <laughs> so you're effectively in for free. That effectively adds another two hundred grand to your salary in a tax efficient way, of course, because you'll be paying ten percent tax on it uh, as a, a founder shares. So it's a very tax efficient way of actually, you know, effect uh, put it on a blended normalized tax rate. He's been taking out half a million quid a year. Yeah. But anyway, you know, that, that as it may be, again, you know, uh, uh, as to the relevance of whether the company product works or not, this is all not sort of, I mean, the bulls would say, well, this is all irrelevant. But the fact is that what, what, what I'm trying to say is that just tweeting little mistruths all the time and, and also with your first venture having failed. I mean, there's no sort of humility there and there's no, you know, if, if you've got to make a, I mean, a lot of a lot of the bulls are saying the great thing about this is it's got superb management who are really sort of looking after everybody and they're quite open and transparent. Well, but, the, but these things that I'm pointing out would suggest that this is not the case. Um, in, terms I mean, of, in terms of superb management who are open and transparent, um, they appointed a fellow called Patrick Abbott to spearhead the American uh, uh, operations earlier this year. Uh, now, he, there was a bit of a spot of bother there, wasn't there? Yeah. Well, this is another thing that I was getting. That was another of the, my points. I'll, I'll skip the, the one before because we're going a bit slowly here. But um, the whole Patrick Abbott thing is, again... Um, in my view, just sort of unbelievable. Well, first of all, here's a little untruth, right? But forget whether he's guilty or innocent. That's sort of pretty much irrelevant. He's, he's, been, um, he's been charged with various counts of fraud, yeah, yeah. which could yeah, yeah, yeah. be him I mean, in no, a slammer for 20 years. Yeah. Um, but, but Patrick Abbott, was, it was announced that he was appointed on, two, on 2103, 21st of March this year. Right? It was then pointed out to them by me and others that the guy had a... Um, uh, criminal proceedings. The company then, on the 4th of April, um, may issued an announcement saying the company has recently learned, i.e. very much inferring that they'd learnt it since uh, the 21st of March when he was appointed. It then said, just said that he was the subject of act active criminal proceedings. It did, you know, the guy's a Marine, he could have punched somebody in a car park or something. You know, it, they didn't say this is for theft. Uh, and, and later to be enlarged at securities fraud, which, you know, is pretty serious. They didn't go into any detail. But, you know, the fact they said the company recently learned, at the same time, Ricketts tweets, yes, we were aware of the situation, i.e. at the time that we employed him. We did our best to investigate and to take a view. And then uh, when asked, you know, a bit of detail about it, he's, he just said identity theft. 
it's been dragging on for a while, hardly the signs of an open and shut case. Well, I mean, the naivety of that, whether the guy is guilty or innocent, the fact is you just have to look at Patrick Abbott's Twitter feed and his website. His website, for instance, the kind of uh, catchphrase on the, uh, at the top is the quote, imagination is the only weapon against the war on reality, Lewis Carroll. Well, in fact, Lewis Carroll didn't write that. Not even the mad hatter could come up with that. <laughs> but uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, a lot of people make that mistake and think it was Lewis Carroll. But anyway, the fact is that the website just shows that the guy, to anybody I would suggest, of any sort of rational um, rational uh, uh, thought process, the guy is clearly completely bonkers. Absolutely stark staring mad. I mean, you just have to go through his website. It takes about 30 seconds and you think this guy is a complete nut job. And yet he's employed. Now, whether he's guilty or innocent... Is he the I one, mean, by the way, who tweeted that I was wanted by uh, authorities, by the SEC and authorities in Texas and was fleeing an arrest warrant? Complete nutcase. Look at his Twitter feed, look at his website. He's a nutcase. Now, uh, he, he's, he's also um, uh, the subject of active criminal proceedings, which Rickett said, yes, we were aware of the situation. Yeah, he's still hired. hired. <coughs> they then stood by him, not once but twice, and then they fired him. But, I mean, I'm just saying, this is just an example for me of extreme... Uh, was this a naivety the right word just just craziness i mean how can you be running a serious business and hire a guy like that whether he's guilty or innocent incidentally you know i've this um mistaken identity thing is complete rubbish i mean i don't know what due diligence he did i've spoken to the guy who uh, who he's alleged to have ripped off and he certainly wasn't a uh, mistaken identity on that the guy did it you know sort of in a you know, straight at him. I mean, it's just, you know, did, did, did anybody, did Nomad or Ricketts or anybody speak to any of the witnesses? The, the, the guy's called Randy Farrow. I spoke to him at length. He sounded a reasonable guy. But anyway, I'm not making any judgment on that. The fact is, what I'm making judgment on is having looked at the guy's website and seen that he is obviously a complete sort of Walter Mitty nutcase and totally unsuitable to be employed doing anything, let alone running around trying to sell graphene. So uh, anyway, that, that, that's just another little thing to starting off with saying uh, we've recently become aware the nomad says, Rickett says, actually, we knew about it all along, but we decided to give him a chance. Right. So that's another little thing. Another one, research note. You know, a lot of um, people are thinking, well, you know, why doesn't Canaccord, their new nomad, you know, they appointed Canaccord to be a sort of grown up broker, write a research note on an interview with IGTV. Uh, Ricketts was asked, do you anticipate a note out on Bersarin in the near future? To which he replies, yes, yes, we do. We are working on that now. Um, Alex is the guy who is writing our research note at Canaccord. Well, Canaccord wrote a general note on the graphene industry. In no way, shape or form can it be described as a research note on Versarion. Versarion is mentioned at some length, incidentally, because obviously they're a client, along with about 10 or 11 other com uh, companies. But 
again, you know, why tell a lie like that? That Kanakor were not writing a research note on Bursari. And why do you say on, you know, I, IGTV, yes, we do, we're working on that. Uh, they're not working on it. He must have been aware of that. And, and which leads to the question, why aren't, you know, Canaccord, um, bless them, have had some sort of slight, slightly odd corporate clients in the past. Incidentally, they were quite happy to write a buy note on Quindell, I think. Um, but I know that they had to back Kevin Ashton because he refused to. Yeah, but they, so then they got somebody else to. The fact is, it is fairly unusual for a broker not to, to, to write a buy note on one of their clients. I mean, that normally comes with the with the package. Um, but anyway, I think that's instructive. But again, you know, just a little bit of, you know, is it a lie? Is it just a semi-truth? Is it a bit of publicity? You know, research notes coming out. Well, it's kind of a research note because it's about the industry and we are the industry. You know, it's all just sort of a little bit kind of muddled, isn't it? Um, okay, okay, can we... Yeah. No, no, you see, you don't, okay, carry on, one more. I mean, it, 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 it stop me when you've had enough lies, right? Okay, no, 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 no. <laughs> we haven't actually, I think you pointed this one out, we haven't actually burnt that much cash. This is another tweet. I know I'm a stickler for facts, but there was 4.3 million of cash and cash equivalents from the 5.5 million raised. Well, you know... This was at the end of the last year, 31st, yeah. 2018. Yeah. So, you know, it's not mentioned what the cash was at the beginning of the year. And uh, so it's just a sort of meaningless statement. Um, In fact, know. the cash burn was materially greater yeah. than a and, few and hundred thousand. Yeah. Incidentally, another point um, on this, which I have made inquiries into and I can't get to the bottom of, but... I intend to at some point, is um, it'll presumably come out when their annual report comes out. But they, they took over 62% of a little Spanish company called Nanomat, um, for which they paid £670 uh, pounds, um, and issued some shares. The company had about 350000 pounds of assets and the rest was goodwill so the goodwill's booked in the accounts plus the the cash outflow of 670,000 but what's odd is again and this goes goes back to the cash burn they received 850,000 pounds um in cash as part of the acquisition now, what's all that about? They're paying out 670000 and receiving 850000 I can't get to the bottom of that, but it sounds a bit odd. Any ideas from any listeners, I'd be interested in that. So it looks like, that, I mean, on, on the face of it, it looks like they were paid net 100 and something thousand to take on this, uh, this company. Um, it's, it's an item in the cash flow statement. It just says cash cash acquired with acquisition or something like that, cash, um, cash that came with acquisition. Well, the, as far as I know, I may be wrong, that was the only acquisition they made. So it looks like they were getting... I, I, anyway, I don't understand that, but it's something to, something to look at. Um, just a few other little comments, uh, which again is just sort of, I think, instructive of the sort of uh, guy. I mean, he said... Um, rather primly that uh, when somebody said 
something about uh, R&D. He said, the thing is, if we hid costs in capitalized R&D, which we could legitimately do, then the dark side, I, I take, take it that that's, that's you and me, <laughs> yeah, would accuse us of that. Much better to be honest and upfront. We are running a business, not the share price. We have to let the market take care of that. So what he's saying is that we don't capitalize R&D. Well, they do capitalize R&D. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, I mean, let's be, let's be fair to them. They, since their inception, they put through about one and a half million through the P&L account in R&D expenses. But they've also capitalized a lot of development costs, which they have amortized, true enough. But about a million, they, 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 there's about a million intangibles that's come onto the balance sheet since they started with, at the, at the height, £640,000 of uh, development costs, which is effectively R&D, which admittedly now is less because they've amortised it. But, you know, why, why make a point of sort of being holier and now saying we don't capitalise R&D costs when quite clearly they do? I'm not making a judgment on whether it's right or not. But why say you don't do it when you do do it, when you do do it? Anyway, that's, have you had enough of these little lies? Let's get on to the... The big no, can we have a, can, let's have another lie, please. Any other okay. lie? One more, <laughs> one more, one more well, lie. Okay, one more lie. One more lie. Okay. Um, uh, well, this isn't so much a lie, but it's just a claim, which a sort of off-the-cuff claim, which I thought was quite good. This was made, I think, to either Justin Waite or to IG. He said, um, "Oh, please about... call him by his proper name, Justin the Clown, please." Okay, Justin the Clown. Um, the, uh, about his his guys at uh, either. Um, to DTEC or Cambridge Graphene, I forget what he says. They're working on a cure for cancer, for dementia, and a cure for diabetes, which I thought was pretty amazing. I didn't realise that as well as uh, making all these wonder materials that um, graphene does actually have an application in medicine, and not only are they going for cancer, but also dementia and diabetes. And that, which we might go on to in a minute, is that one of the subsidiaries has two employees and uh, R&D budget over four years of 1.5 million. And they're looking to cure cancer, dementia, and diabetes. Well, if they do that, I think that's pr a pretty good achievement, don't you? That's a great that's, British that's, company. Spectacular. Anyway, that's not a lie. That's just a bold claim. Just us who could be fleet enough to bullshit. Now, OK, can we move on to one other thing, which I'm a bit confused about? Within the uh, Vasarian business, there is the exciting graphene business, which is going to build new railway lines from uh, 3D models, cure cancer, diabetes, uh, supplies the Israeli army, uh, transform the world of oil exploration. And then there's the legacy business, um, which is the crap that Ricketts floated initially, plus a couple of other bolt-ons. Yeah. Does he, uh, the excitement, I mean, the legacy businesses are clearly completely and utterly worthless and pointless. The excitement, well, no, we no, can... no, I wouldn't agree with that. I th there are basically three, the legacy businesses are the one that he raised the initial money from his mates for, which is effectively <coughs> bankrupt. And, and if he had any sense or lack of pride, he would just close it down because it clearly hasn't worked. I, you know, again, I'm not making a judgment on that, but Versarian Technologies, which was this, copper, foam, whatever. Hasn't worked, fine. They've moved on to graphene, so why not just close it down? On top of that, he's got two other businesses, one called uh, Total Carbide, which he used to run. It was part of Electron, 
um, when he ran it, uh, it was a quite small quoted engineering company, and the Total Carbide was a subsidiary. So he bought that. I mean, that, I, that that's not worth nothing. I mean, it doesn't make much money. I think it had a sort of small EBITDA profit. Um, it's got a bit of turnover. And uh, the other one is one that he bought called AAC Cyroma, which again has a bit of turnover, a uh, little bit of EBITDA. And uh, th the idea of that is that is grouped in with the graphene business as plastics and graphene. And I think that th the rationale for buying that was to be able to, for them to be able to make polymer molds or whatever into which they could put their graphene. So that's why it's a bit confusing when he breaks out the revenues that um, uh, he, he, the, the two business divisions are plastics and graphics, which is Caroma and the graphene businesses, and then um, the other stuff, I forget what he calls that, hard something or other, which is total carbide, which is worth a bit, and uh, Bursarium, which is technologies, which is, in my opinion, worth zero. But uh, so, I mean, in terms of the valuation, I would say that... Um, he could probably get what he paid for them, maybe a bit more. So, I mean, if you're generous, you might call um, the, what you might say, legacy business worth maybe 10 million. So the graphene is in there at, I don't know what the market cap is now. 200 million, 200 million. Okay, so, so the graphene business is three things, right? It's um, uh, a spin-off from Manchester University called 2D Tech. That, that's quite an interesting one, which he paid £400,000 for. And then Cambridge Graphene, which he paid uh, a couple of hundred thousand pounds for. And then this Nanomat, which I've just mentioned, and we don't quite know what he's paid for it because of this 850, but call it, you know, a lot of goodwill. But he bought £350,000 of assets and paid two point something million with shares and cash and this anomaly that I can't get to the bottom of. So... That's a total cost of uh, three and a half million. Three, let's be generous. Three and a half million, which that's what's now being valued effectively at 190 million. Now, what's interesting is about 2D Tech is that when he took it over, he appointed this guy who he'd known. This is why I mean the, the bulls would say this is an unbelievably exciting technology. That uh, just just to very briefly outline the bull case. Bursarin is the only company out there which has something called verified graphene produce, producer status by an organisation called the Graphene Council. Um, that uh, nobody, everybody else who claims to sell graphene, this is the extreme bull case. It's not really graphene. It's not the real deal. Bursarin are the only people who have the real deal. And people are beginning to realise that. Hence, about, these Chinese are about to buy 15% of them and ACOM about to give them huge orders. That, in a nutshell, is the, is the bull case. So what's odd about that is that you'd have thought that if that was the case, that there'd be people sort of clamouring to work at, uh, at, at uh, 2D Tech and uh, Cambridge Graphene. I don't know anything about Nanomat, so we'll leave that aside for the moment. But taking... Uh, the 2D Tech, which is the larger of the two, they, if you look at their their original website, um, it had six employees on there, all photographed nicely and you know said what they're doing. They uh, only one of them is left now. All all of them have left except for one guy called John Benson who's working out of Ulster, who was helped develop the original uh, 
um, Nanin, I believe. Um, but he's a sort of one-man band working at the University of Ulster and, and nominally an employee of 2D Tech. The first uh, guy running it, who Rickett, I think he's from Ricketts, is part of the world down in uh, near Cheltenham or wherever it is, a guy called Nigel Salter. He was there, he was on the video originally saying great things about it with um, the, the various other members of the board and, uh, and a technical expert called Aravind VJ Arag Haven, who was the technical expert. He was his appointment was, was announced on the in late 2014. He's now left, set up his own business. Nigel Salter left after a year and a half. He was succeeded by a guy called Anthony Cooper, he left who left after five months. It's unclear who's in charge there now. All the people on the website who have now come off the website, but they're on the original website, with the exception of John Benson, five of them, they've all left. Some of them, incidentally, have gone to Manchester and they're working at Manchester University. So maybe Vasarian would argue that actually on the side they're still working for Vasarian, but they're not they're not formally employed by Vasarian or any of its subsidiaries. Um, and it just seems a bit odd, you know, that um, I, I, I rang... Uh, um, the Manchester uh, 2D Tech, and they've got two employees, I was told, by one of them. Um, two employees, both of them pretty young, probably mid to late 20s, fresh out of university. And uh, it just seems a bit odd, you know, that none of the, you know, why, why, why are all these people not working there now? Why is there no... Uh, bios of anyone employees on the website and incidentally if you look at their website they've got the three projects that they've got on there one is um for a, a company they've updated all their M mous and um and collaborations that they've announced since october 2017 but all the ones before that just seem to have fallen off a cliff they just don't mention them but if you look on their website, one of them is with some Olympic bobslayer or something, and they, they were going to put graphene. It's still on the website saying, we will put graphene in the sleds for the uh, Winter Olympics of 2018. Well, that's, you know, already happened. We haven't had an update on that. Another one's for 3D printing. You know, what happened there? Another one's for graphene-enhanced batteries. What you know what happened there so it's always the next big thing the next big thing and you know well, something that's okay, just a... <laughs> okay we're to accept there's a lot of jam tomorrow but putting these together we we have a series of announcements using the adam reynolds keyboard about uh deals with unnamed companies for unknown values we suspect rather small um is it possible to identify how last year turnover was roughly nine million quid how much of that do we believe comes from graphing? Well, £40,000, because they they break out the revenues for uh, the th two of the legacy businesses and the sort of semi-legacy business, which is AAC uh, Syroma. The revenue for the group reported in the accounts the other day was £9.1 and the they state the revenue for Total Carbide, Versarian Technologies, and AC Caroma, and that comes to uh, £40,000 shy of that. So you could infer from that that the graphene revenue 
was forty thousand pounds. Are you sure they're not booking some some of the graphene revenues in the other subsidiaries? Well, they may be, but why would they be doing that? I mean, you know, they've they've. I mean, it may be that some of the revenues is booked through AAC Cyroma in a sort of uh, polymer graphene um, uh, sale. But I, I mean, I don't think that's too big an issue because the, he, the, the Ricketts, the, to his credit, does actually say, well, graphene sales at this moment are minimal. Um, I don't think they're denying that that graphene sales are, despite, incidentally, the fact they said in the 2018 accounts, we have had our first orders both from the UK and China, or maybe the US and China, but, you know, maybe they were 20 grand each. But that is not going to deter the believers in Versailles. And the fact is that the, 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 the big things are just potting up, and that is the um, ACOM deal. And uh, incidentally, on, on the IG interview and the new thing is that you've got all this little stuff right that the juniors the two juniors i guess who work for 2d tech muck about with um you know the bobsleighs and the the inks and stuff like that but um the the big picture is there are five big areas with huge multinationals that the company is working on and when (laughs) when ricketts was asked what they were by the ig guy he said right he he, you know he, he put out his five fingers and said right Building materials, textiles, and then I was waiting for three, four, and five, and there was a bit of a pause, and he said, and uh, product in the Chinese area. <laughs> 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 and then, and then he, he sort of changed the subject. So I guess there are three projects in the Chinese, oh, sorry, products in the Chinese arena. So you got building materials, textiles, and one, two, three, Men products. So, anyway, that's where the excitement is. Um, and I think, yeah, the, 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 the big point that people make is that this that there's a huge amount is made of this verified graphene producer status, um, which is basically saying that they are the only people who have got their product is by a recognised body, um, uh, classified as graphene. Well, in fact, the verified graphene producer status is something that is acquired through a body called the Graphene Council. And the Graphene Council say that they have had it checked out by the um, National Physical Laboratory, which is the kind of standard measurement organisation in the UK. Um, so we're pleased to have worked, they say, we are pleased to have worked with the NPL in the UK, regarded as one of the absolute top facilities for metrology, that means measuring stuff, and graphing characterization in the world. They have provided outstanding analytical expertise for the materials testing portion of the program. Well, the NPL are very keen to state that they do not verify anything for anybody that there is only one graphene standard at the moment, and that does not classify the stuff. There are three in the offing, and they will, for a fee, um, undertake measurements for other bodies, but they do not verify anything. So um, the verification is certainly, and some people have been implying that it comes from the MPL, it is not at all. It comes from this American body, which is one of very many graphene bodies out there, where you basically you pay them money, I don't know how much money, 
and you say, here's our stuff, please will you verify it? So they take the money and they come back and say, yeah, we've looked at it and we can tell you that this is graphene. But, you know, there are plenty of other companies that uh, are selling what they call graphene and don't feel the need to go through this test and uh, are selling the stuff in reasonable quantities. I mean, the next largest company in terms of market cap to Versarin, a Canadian quoted company called Nano Explore, they uh, sold a million dollars worth of graphene. And guess what? They, they tell you what they're going to do. They say, we are going to build a plant to, to, build, to, to, to manufacture X amount of graphene. These are the guys we're going to sell it to. These are our margins. This is what we're going to lose this year. This is what we hope to make next year. I mean, I've never heard anybody with Versario give any kind of indication as to what they sell it for, um, you know, how much they expect to make, uh, or any kind of metric on it. In fact, I've got a quote, one more quote somewhere. Um, I don't know, this wasn't a little lie, this was just another quote, because Ricketts was actually asked by Justin um, about the price of... Uh, <laughs> let's call him Justin, right? He was asked... Clown. Um, uh, how much graphene cost, right? Uh, right, he's Justin, this was on the 28th of June, 2019. Justin says, <laughs> what is the price... Uh, range of graphene. What do people sell it at? A reasonable question from Justin. Would you no, I, I, for, by his standards, <laughs> that was high-level interrogative journalism. By his standards, that really is Frost versus Nixon. Right. Well, this is what Neil replies verbatim, right? And I know it's difficult speaking off the cuff in an interview, but this is what he says, right? To be honest, I couldn't tell you at the moment it's a fast-moving uh, price range, and that's because customers and suppliers don't necessarily know what they're supplying or how they are supplying it. <laughs> so his, his competitor in Canada is perfectly able to get this information, but for some reason Ricketts is unable to do so. Yes, I mean, I can understand that it is quite difficult trying to nail down the price of graphene because obviously when you're selling it to people just as little samples, it costs a lot more. And there are various different types of it. And if you read, the, which is quite interesting, I recommend people do read uh, Catacord's uh, analysis of the graphene industry. Um, prices can range a huge amount. And, you know, the market forecast for graphene sales is in that, you know, the, it's so wide as to be completely pointless. In fact, funnily enough, Canaccord have the highest estimate. They reckon by 2030, sales of graphene might be 4.8 billion. That means actual graphene, not products containing graphene, but graphene itself in, the, in its various forms, 4.8 billion. The lower end of the esti estimates are nothing like that, 400, 400 million by 2030. And the base case for about 2025, the highest I've seen, which he also quotes, is uh, 500 million. So that's 500 million. Call that on average by 2025. That's what, five years away. 500 million US dollars. That is the entire global sales of graphene, right? So what 
uh, Canaccord says is that because this is a new and exciting industry, that 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 might sell on three times sales. So call that 1.5 billion, right? That say say that the combined market cap and worth of graphene company is three times sales, and in 2025 there's half a billion graphene sales, right? So therefore, 1.5 billion is the worth of all graphene producers. So, you know, right now, that is presupposing uh, Versarian. That's not, you know, obviously discounted back to net present value. But that that is assuming that uh, uh, Versarian would have a huge share of global graphene sales. Well, I'm sure a lot of the bulls would say, yeah, sure, we will have a huge share because we're the only people who actually make graphene. But, um, but that's not true. Well, th they would Canadian. These Canadian Johnnies you were telling me about, they seem to make a lot more of it than Vasarian. Ah, oh, but that's not the real stuff that you want. Oh. It's, not, it's, not, it's not really graphene. That the, um, you know, that the whole point about graphene, it has to be only very, very small number of atoms thick. And uh, Vasarian makes thinner and better quality stuff than, than uh, anybody else. And anybody else, really, because they haven't paid money to... Uh, the graphene council. Sounds like our conversation last week about cannabis. Neil Ricketts has got the real weed, whereas these Canadian people, they've mixed it in with a few chopped knuckles. <laughs> it's not quite so good. <coughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I, I'm sure that the... Uh, what are these Canadian <coughs> Johnnies? What, what are they capitalised at, these Canadian fellows? <coughs> they are capitalised at about 130. How many Canadian dollars to the pound? Oh, no, not a lot. Their, their currency's gone down the toilet even more than ours. So okay. call that 70 million quid. Um, they, yeah, I mean, it's slightly less, less than half. Less than half of Versarian. No, a third. It's a third of Versarian. Well, hang on. I can tell you right now. No, 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 no. no, 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 no. Okay, somewhere between a third okay, and a half. Okay, somewhere between a third and a half. Nano Explore, they trade at 136. Uh, um, Canadian dollars, and I think their market cap from memory is about 120, 130 Canadian. So, but um, they've got real sales and real visibility. They, uh, I mean, and they're similar in that they've got they've got they've got sales of about 15 million actually. But most of that is the in Versarian terms, it would be AAC Cyroma. They own a sort of plastic molding company. So it's legacy business. So, so well, no, 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 it's not. But what they're intending to do. And I, I think the same with Versailles, although I haven't heard Ricketts speak about this much, is to use the, the plastic sort of casting polymer business to put the graphene in. So the two kind of complement each other. Um, so, but yeah, they sold a million, um, a million dollars worth of graphene or graphene uh, nano platelets. Uh, last year and they have now you know got up and running on a plant they tell you what their margins are which are 56 percent and they're pretty kind of you know i can't see why so I, I understand that it's quite a difficult industry because there are loads of different applications and everything but when why you can't have any kind of stab about you know potential price points or uh um you know, uh, but size of orders or production. I mean, to say, oh, this is all commercial, we'll get as much as we possibly can. I mean, it's a little, it's just nonsense in my opinion. Should I undertake, uh, understand from this, actually, that there is no, no real technological barriers to entry? 
there seem to be quite a lot of companies out there who can produce graphene, whether it's pure Neil Ricketts graphene or slightly less pure graphene. There's a lot of people out there who can do it. So the only barrier to entry is capital. Correct. Ultimate, so um, ultimately, if, if Canaccord is right, which history suggests is unlikely, and the market grows dramatically, it will become a commodity market and margins will react accordingly. Yes, well, what Nano Explorer is saying is that a lot of the, um, a lot of the uh, uh, difficulty at the moment is the price. And they're reckoning, and, and, and the Canaccord note also says this, that the price... Uh, is forecast to fall as you know, as the nano platelet sort of powders is going to fall sort of pretty much exponentially over the over the next few years if the uh, whole thing takes off. I mean, at the moment, as a rough rule of thumb, you're talking about maybe a hundred dollars a kilogram, um, but that that is set to fall by certainly nano explores. Um, Reckon it well. I mean, they're thinking they're, they're talking about it getting down to eight dollars a kilo um, in a few years' time, and uh, it'll certainly come down. Obviously, the more people are doing it, but I mean, the, the, certainly graphene. There is a, um, a a relative amount of excitement about it. In that, I mean, I what the the bulls were terribly excited that Boris Johnson went to Manchester the other day, and pretty much the first thing he said to the packed hall of Northerners was. Um, uh, we're on the cusp of the graphene revolution, and um, so there are there is a sort of certain amount of sort of renewed excitement. I mean, if you think graphene was founded in 2004 and nothing really happened for about 10 years, and then loads of uh, companies uh, got quoted in the graphene space, and they've all, with the exception of Versari, have done extremely badly. Um, it's what's called the uh, uh, trough of disillusionment that happens after the, this is from the Canaccord note, you, you, you get the original innovation, a bit like if you think of the internet, you know, you get the internet comes out, everyone gets terribly excited, you get the 1999, 2000 peak of excitement, then you get the crash um, on the, after the peak of inflated expectations and the trough of disillusionment, which is what we're just coming out of now, the bulls would say, and then Finally, you get the slope of uh, enlightenment, which is when all these things really start to work after the, the initial craziness. So, or put it another way, this, when, you get, when you get the political class jumping on something, as followers of DeLorean, British Leyland, yeah. and numerous other examples now, you know that, oh, of anti-communications, you'll know that's the kiss of death. Yeah, but I mean, certainly there is, <coughs> there, there does seem to be, maybe this is just Bursarian, but... I mean, Nano Explorer doing the same. There does seem to be a sort of slight renewal of excitement in graphene, which had been basically sort of dead and buried as yet another hype, uh, you know, in the in the years after they all floated in sort of 14, 15. I mean, 16, 17, you know, all these graphene companies collapsed. Um, and Versarian did nothing. And then, you know... They're, they're, they're all just sort of flatlining now, except obviously for Versailles, which took off like a skyrocket whenever it did, you know, a year and a bit ago. Okay, um, let's just, just, in terms of, before, as we seek to wind yeah. up, yeah. Um, does Versailles have much cash? Um, yeah, well, yeah, it's got about four million. And of course, the Chinese are about to put in huge amounts. Do we believe that? 
Well, I don't really believe. It. I mean, the Chinese are quite smart. I, you know, the Chinese don't won't do sort of something for nothing. And uh, I don't know. We'll see. But it's always the, the thing with Versailles is there's always something exciting to look forward to. I mean, it was the ACOM deal and all the excitement of going down to Bristol. Now that's sort of slightly on the back burner because we're obviously waiting for the huge orders to come through. The next big thing is that the Chinese deal, uh, <coughs> incidentally, is a, is a uh, organization called the Beijing Institute of Graphene Technology, which has absolutely no traction on the internet or anywhere. Um, it was uh, a spin-off, apparently, from the Beijing Institute of Aeronautical Materials, who already have a uh, a tie-up with Manchester University. So anyway, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense with me. They've already said that, that, or that they announced a year or so ago that they were going to build, they got somebody to build a factory to manufacture the stuff in Jinan, and that seems to be on the back burner. But uh, uh, yeah, the, 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 the feeling is, and everybody's saying, and Ricketts has intimated, that come the AGM, which will be in September, all will be revealed about the Chinese uh, putting buying 15% of Versailles in for whatever they're supposed to uh, to um, get out of that. But as you say, I mean, the idea that you negotiate with a company to sell 15% of yourself and don't mention price is, is just completely absurd. But Nothing really surprises me with this company. I mean, the fact that you can sit down with some Chinese, presumably a translator, say, yeah, yeah, sure, you know, we'll do this for you, you know, you show good faith, you buy 15% of our company, and uh, we'll start up a, you know, a uh, um, foreign-owned enterprise in, uh, in China, and we'll get you to do it for us, and you can introduce our technology to all your clients i don't know how it works but the fact is and and you don't discuss price it's is just la la land to me but but of course they didn't they can't just they can't discuss price because uh, that would mean that neil ricketts was trading on the back of price sensitive information which of course he never do because he's pure than driven snow but um, i would suspect if, if any money if the chinese were to put any money into uh Versarium, they would want to control the money so it would probably stay in China and they'd, uh, you know, spend it accordingly. I mean, the Chinese, you know, don't do UK companies really any favours, however many ex-members of the, 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 the Department of Trade and Industry troops up and sort of shakes their hands. I mean, they're out to get our money. They'll be looking to relieve us our own money, not the other way around. So you, you wouldn't put it uh, past Vasarian to have to have another placing uh, at some stage within the next 12 months? I don't think that's really relevant. Um, I'd, you know, whether, if Vasarian runs out of money, they've got enough uh, private, you know, they, they had an oversubscribed placing to raise, what, five million or something with primary bid uh, a year ago. I, I, I don't think... I think, but the thing with Versailles is, that in the general scheme of things, they spend very little money. I mean, apart from sort of travelling around the world and signing MOUs, they don't seem to employ anybody, 
and uh, their R&D is next to nothing in, in, in the general scheme of starting a world-beating industry. I mean, as I say, they've uh, they put through the P&L account £1.5 million worth of R&D, and probably a lot of that was legacy business. I don't know, because they don't break it out. Uh, that, that's not per year. That's in four or five years. So they're spending three, £400,000 uh, on R&D. Um, and they say, oh, well, we're piggybacking off all these geniuses at the university so we don't have to pay for anything. They don't spend any money. The capex is ne next to nothing. So they can go on for ages and ages. You know, to raise a few million here like they have done for four, losing money for four years. They can buy, you know, they can even afford to make these little acquisitions like uh, the university spin-off for two, three hundred thousand pounds. Um, but so I, I, whether, whether or not they run out of money, if they run out of money, they just raise another few million. So what, so what happens to the share price? I mean, in the earlier interview, uh, Zach Mir said they were going up, which, which should give you bears some comfort. Um, but uh, they could go up, couldn't they? Well, well, uh, you and I would say that the share price is bonkers. Um, when a share price is bonkers, there's nothing to stop it going double bonkers. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we, we're sort of going round full circle now back to the beginning, so I think we can kind of wrap this up fairly soon. But I'll just go back to what I said at the beginning, is that what um, I think the share price is absolutely crazy. All the indications are that it are. I think the management, the way the management behaves is uh, these little fibs I've told you about. It doesn't inspire any confidence. I think the whole thing has been um, hugely overhyped. But as And, and, and you know, I, I would also say that this is not a... This is more of a bit of a hobby for me because um, there is no. I, I, I'm short a minuscule amount. I mean, I, I, and I'd like to short more. I wouldn't sort of short more necessarily right now, but um, there is no borrow. I ask for borrow every single day, and there just isn't any. So, um, uh, in terms of the share price, I, I don't know. Which is why I said, as I said to Paul Scott when we did purple bricks i said you know don't ask me where the share price is going to be in the next week or the next month i don't know as you've just said when things go crazy never short something just because it's crazy but if things go crazy they can get crazy really crazy i mean you know 200 million 400 million a billion who's counting but the fact is that this these things like they all do they'll, they'll it'll blow out unless they have got something and in my uh, opinion that's a very very remote um uh, possibility. So what I would say to you is let us have this a conversation about Versailles in one year and see where we are. But I would say, uh, all I can tell you is I think this will all have blown over in one year's time. I don't think there'll be any sales to speak of uh, 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 that anything like justifies the share price come um, where are we? End of July 2020. Do you think that will be the killer point? It's just that when the sales fail to materialise Gradually, the members of the cult uh, will lose faith in the uh, Jim Jones of Cheltenham and yeah, decide that uh, they're, 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 they're going to go elsewhere. I think uh, Ricketts has got a very loyal following. I mean, if you think that he got, I'm not going to say ripped off, but he got these guys originally, I don't know whether they're still shareholders, to pay huge amounts of money for a company that's now effectively bankrupt. I'm talking about Versarian Technologies. So that was the that, that was how he raised the money, this copper phone thing, right? So all these guys, you know, within a very short period of time, he was going from selling shares at £125 to £375. 
those guys who were paying £375 were effectively valuing that company at getting on for £5 million. Now, where did that valuation come from? It's completely crazy. And as we now know, hindsight's an easy thing. That company is worthless. So, But these guys on the flotation, were make, the guys who paid £375 were making 30% on their money. So they're not complaining. The guys at £125 a share, they were making twice their money. Nobody's complaining. Every placing they've done so far, except except for the last one last year, has made money. They've done place shares at 26p, 18p. Everybody's making money, which inspires a lot of loyalty. And guess what? Every time the share price has come down, which it has had a few sort of lurches down, uh, Neil has said, you know, keep the faith. And um, the share price has gone back up again. So that kind of reinforces the, the, the cult feeling. And uh, just lastly on this, I would say, because I have nothing against Neil Ricketts. I'm sure he's a very nice guy. And, you know, uh, good luck to him. The guy on paper's worth, what, 22 million quid? And, you know, that must be a very exciting feeling um, for, for the investment that he's put into it. He's, he's very, he's put a lot of time and energy into it. And if he succeeds, I'd be the first to take my hat off to him. But one thing I would criticise him for, um, which I, I do think is a bit much, is that a lot of his shareholders are pretty inexperienced people, and I, there are plenty of there are plenty of experienced guys who, are, like everybody else in the market, thinks you know I'm just buying this stock because I think it's going to go up. Greater fool theory. I'll flip it to someone else. But there are a lot of people I get the sense who have put serious amounts of their personal wealth into this, and. And Ricketts has done absolutely nothing to disabuse him of the notion, which to anybody, I hope bulls would agree with me on this, is a highly speculative stock. You, you cannot classify Versailles as anything else as speculative. Now, fine to buy a speculative stock, put a little bit into it. But what, but what I do disagree with is that Ricketts is encouraging people, or certainly not uh, uh, showing any uh, signs of cautioning people on putting, you know, really large uh, portions of their net worth into this stock on on, on the basis that it's a, a sort of uh, um, he's the messiah and it's a total no-brainer. And uh, you know, for instance, him saying, "I think you came up with this theory about sixty p for the Chinese paying." 60p for 15% uh, of Versailles, and then Ricketts sort of tweeted, no way would I sell out at 60p. Well, you know, 60p is hugely more than what the company would be worth, and he'd be extraordinarily lucky to sell 15% of the company at 60p. But It wasn't a theory. That, we know there was uh, a Chinese okay, institution but, but, looking... But, yeah, but, but we don't know that. Anyway, what I'm saying is to sort of say, poo, poo, 60p, because the share price happens to be 120. But on any fundamental basis, that's an absolute steal. And, to, and, and all I'm saying is that I, I really don't think it is a good idea for uh, CEOs of companies using the medium of Twitter to be making out that their shares are a steal and encouraging people who are perhaps slightly uh, mentally challenged or not mentally challenged, but let's call it inexperienced investors. No, no, let's uh, think we're mentally challenged. Story. And if if um, Versaria were not to come up with the goods and to revert back to being a sort of shell company with a good idea and capitalise, which is, in my view, what it should be, at sort of, you know, the same as all the rest of them, you know, between 10 and 20 million pounds max, 
Um, there are a lot of people who are going to absolutely be ruined by that because they've been hoodwinked into putting, you know, 60, 70, 80 percent of their net worth into it. And I, do, I, don't, I don't think that's a very good idea. I mean, fine to say, look, this is very exciting. We're doing our best. But, you know, by all means, invest in us and I'll keep you updated on Twitter. But please know that this is a speculative stock. You know, nothing has been signed. We've got no income. We hope to. And we're very encouraged that we might but 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 i don't know of any other ceos who do that do you i mean i guess because not many of the rest of them are on twitter but but to, to sort of make out that this is a surefire thing and just all you need to do is be patient and you're going to absolutely retire early is in my view extremely irresponsible oh the guy anyway, from frontier yeah. resources you'll all be driving rolls royces at christmas i think uh, uh, he okay. would uh, be uh... Okay. but okay. Well, Anyway, he's not the only one doing it, but he's the only one I know doing it because he's on Twitter all the time. But and uh, but anyway, I just anyway on that rather pompous note, I think we've just about covered that. Uh, covered, covered. Okay, well, let's reverse in a year's time. Thank you very much, like, Lucian. Okay, we'll, we'll talk again about on this one, and um, we'll see who's right. And if I'm wrong, I'd be the first to apologise and eat humble pie and great dollops. Okay, good. Thank yeah. you very much. Okay, bye. a little bit longer than expected I had told Lucien we'd get it over with in just 25 minutes but we went on, it was such fun going through the Neil Ricketts lies list uh, trying to understand the maths behind this company as I think we both concluded shares in Vasarian could go anywhere short term hell Steve, it is just possible that Zach Mir could be right and they could go up to £1.60 you don't know it's a totally insane share price. There are no institutional shareholders. Well, none to speak of. That means there's no borrow on the stock. So, or very little borrow. So, it's very hard for people to short it. And therefore, it's not a truly liquid stock. The only people who decide the direction of play, with very little bear involvement, very little institutional involvement, the share price is driven entirely by the private investor world. At the moment, uh, the private investors are quite happy to stay fully paid up members of the cult. They believe the Jam Tomorrow stories. It doesn't matter that so many of the Jam Tomorrow stories spun by Neil Ricketts over the years since he floated Vasarian have been proven to be complete and utter fooey. They still believe that the next Jam Tomorrow story will come good. Of course, the problem is that the share price already discounts not only one jam tomorrow's story coming good, but a whole stream of them. This is a business which, if you strip out the legacy business, is doing sales of way under a million quid a year, possibly less than 100,000. Yes, is being valued at 200 million. That is preposterous. It is ludicrous. But, as we've discussed so many times, uh, if a share is valued at ludicrous preposterous, it can easily go to double ludicrous preposterous. So shares could go anywhere. On fundamentals, you do know that Viserion will one day collapse. The share price will one day collapse at least. But before then, it could go anywhere. If you enjoyed the cut and thrust of the discussion on Viserion, uh, you can't wait another week 
for the next edition of Share Profits Radio, uh, perhaps you should consider subscribing to Share Profits. I know a lot of those listening uh, at this point already do, but if you don't, I produce a daily podcast, Bearcast, where I look at the dark underbelly of AIM, the standard list in the main market. I look at overpromotes, look at outright frauds. I don't mince my words. So if you want more of this and can't wait another week, sign up for Share Profits. It only costs five ninety nine a month. That's less than 2p per article. Uh, what amazing value. Sign up now. I'll be back with another edition of Share Profits Radio in a week's time. Speak to you from Greece, if not from Wales, then. <laughs>